0: and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from hobet Books as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. and welcome to the hobcast book show it is episode number 111 111 which is nelson in cricketing terms oh that's... um it's 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 uh, in english cricket uh it is uh, regarded as something of an unlucky number and there used to be a, uh, an umpire called david shepherd who used to lift his leg while it was 111 or 222. Like <laughs> yeah he used to basically cock his leg up yeah uh, stand on one leg um, occasionally, it was, a, it was a thing
1: A thing, okay, I'll, in the I'll, 70s I'll leave and 80s. it there
0: <laughs> Anyway, welcome to the show, my name's Adrian Hobart
1: My name's Rebecca Collins
0: And together we run Hoback Books, UK independent publishers Of the following four genres Thrillers Crime
1: Suspense
0: And mysteries And our guest this week is the wonderful Nicole Johnston Who is a book coach, amongst other things
1: she is. She's lots of things. And she's had a, a fascinating career as well.
0: Absolutely. A career she's... writing speeches for some of the world's leading politicians.
1: And she's met somebody I like a lot.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. That's not Boris Johnson. It's not, not Boris Johnson, but she's <laughs> met him too. Um, but no, certainly isn't Boris. Well, um, thank you for joining us on the show. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And uh, we really are very thrilled. We will get into the news in a moment. But... Um, it's uh, it's it's a funny old week this week. I think. Um, in, in what way? Well, you've got we've well, got three boys back here.
1: Yes, at the moment. Yes, well, two would have been here anyway, and the third one who um, is at Leeds University most of the time has Reading Week. So yeah, he's here too, or
0: indeed Sleeping Week, as it seems to be. Well, so far. he
1: did set his alarm for nine o'clock and then promptly fell asleep. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, bless him. Uh, anyway, he's getting proper food and uh, no more pot noodles for a bit. Anyway, um, Oh, I
1: don't think he eats pot noodles. Doesn't
0: he? No, don't uh, think so. No, okay, fair enough. Well, um, thanks for joining us on the show, and uh, we'll get into the news now. And what have you got?
1: Um, so we missed the Independent Publishers Guild
0: Spring Conference. Oh, um, well, we didn't miss it, we just chose not to go.
1: Well, we were travelling anyway, travelling back from Rye in Sussex. Um, and it seems that one of the main topics of conversation, as you can probably predict, is was AI.
0: Artificial intelligence and Artificial its impact on publishing, yes.
1: Yes, so um, uh, David Rowan, who is the founding editor-chief of Wired Magazine. We spoke about Wired Magazine last week yeah, because I, I, they contacted I, you.
0: That's right, they did, and that was over the subject of AI, <laughs> AI and narration, and Fido Voices putting a clause in there, uh, which allowed them to give Apple access to every voice that they produced and then copy it.
1: Yeah, so he spoke about AI, and um, he spoke about sort of fears of um, what the implications for the publishing industry. And uh, so this sort of made me my stomach flip a bit when he said it could have as big an impact on publishing as the Gutenberg Press, which we know had a rather big impact on the world of publishing. Um, he described himself as ninety-one percent excited. You can mm-hmm. tell he's a <laughs> technical man, yep. and 9% terrified by the implications.
0: Yeah, well, I'm probably the other way around, I would think. Yeah, um, I think you are. I think no, you are. Well, I, I am to a to, to, to great degree. As I say, I think AI could be really useful in certain ways, but I think what they're trying to do is take out the human element, and actually what you need to do is have an AI element that allows you to do the boring things quickly that um oh, for instance uh you know there are lots of um things that people use and i have used pro writing ages you have and grammarly and things like that which mm. are gradually getting better and better at sorting out your grammar especially for people who really have no understanding of
1: grammar. yeah it's good for a beginning isn't it when you first have completed your manuscript mm. it's a good a, sort of a but, first but past the post
0: where i have a, a a limit you know i think i think what's so dangerous is that the whole point about creating art, whether it be what we do, publishing books, writing books, and indeed, you know, creating music or uh, the visual arts and indeed uh, AIs are increasingly being used in terms of creating uh, graphics and, uh, you know, stuff for, you know, the visual arts. So I I think, You know, that way you replace the human element with something that synthesizes human creation. That's where I I have a problem with it. I think that if it enhances the process and speeds it up, Mm. that's fine. But as long as the human is still in control of it. But also, as a consumer, I want to know that someone actually went to some effort to produce the thing that I'm enjoying.
1: Yeah, and I I'm, I have a similar view to you because I I think it's a fantastic opportunity for creative people to uh, explore new things. For example, Jane Map with her book cover design, she's used AI to create images. So when we said we want it to have a house that looks like... You know, we give it a specification for the house mm-hmm. and, the, and the time of day or whatever. She's used AI to create something. I mean, she, she hasn't so far, as far as I'm aware, none of our covers are generated imagery exclusively with AI. But she's had a try and shown us her what the results of this. So it's like you say, it can be a bit clunky at the moment. It's yeah, not quite I, I, refined enough.
0: Well, at the moment, you know, you're taking you know the general process of creating a cover, and I, I mean, obviously, I don't create them, but you know there's always some stock photo imagery or generally speaking involved which we subscribe to and so the photographer of that stock image and indeed the agency that provides it are getting uh some some money toward you know in recompense for their efforts and that's fair enough mm-hmm. where um AIs come in And this is the question. There is a big question over who owns the copyright of something that you put through an AI program. Is it the people who created the program, or is it the people who put the input in to suggest what it should make for you? That's another thing. That's another really very difficult issue which a lot of um, lawyers are now poring over at the moment.
1: Yes, I tell you, if I was to be a lawyer, I would not want to be an IP lawyer because it is a minefield.
0: It really is. It really is. Uh, well, I mean, that's interesting that, you know, it's a useful perspective. And it, actually, I mean, one of the reasons we did go to the IPG conference is it's enormously expensive to attend.
1: Yeah. And it was in London as well. So we'd have to factor in travel and accommodation, yeah. all those sort of things.
0: You know, we are members of it uh, as an organisation. But, um, you know, I, th- I, I do think that the price point at some times of their activities is, is beyond our means. We put it that I way? think
1: it's just that we'd rather spend that money on
0: our books, yeah. and our authors, yeah. So. yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: But also at the IPG conference, um, Nigel Newton, the um CEO of Bloomsbury, um, very well known, <laughs> um, he yes, that famous independent
0: <laughs> publisher, yes, go on.
1: So he, um, was a bit more sort of rosy about the future of AI, but w- one thing he talked about, which I quite like, is he talked about the um, publishing industry in terms of the um, success of smaller independent publishers and he's saying the reason that they are a good thing to have now this is coming from somebody who owns a large independent publisher
0: mm, a it's, mega independent yeah publisher. so yeah.
1: it probably it, it still calls itself an independent publisher but it's
0: and, and it got eight nominations for the ipg awards <laughs> yes go on
1: but it it doesn't have the flexibility of smaller presses such as us which he says is a good thing for the small presses we can uh take greater risks we decide what we publish um it's good authors who come to independent presses that may have better a better chance because of that because we can Well I I
0: think uh, another point he made was that we make we we you know, authors often have a better relationship with their publisher because it's more relatable because you're dealing with, in our case, the two of us, as opposed to a committee. Or, you know, you might be working with one person for six months who can again, then gets a promotion or, or moves to a different company and you lose that relationship. So, yeah, there is a consistency factor there.
1: Yeah. So I just, it's nice to have somebody from a big company champion the likes of us. That's all. Yeah.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, The story I've got in front of me is about bookshop.org, who have um, made quite an impact, particularly in the United States, uh, in supporting independent bookshops and, uh, you know, uh, creating new revenue streams for them. But what they're entering into, uh, bookshop.org, is they are now moving into the e-book market. And they are planning to be selling e-books by the end of the year and they're also going to publish their very first book which is our strangers by Lydia Davis now they're um currently programming their uh, their shop front and uh, selling ebooks uh at the moment and it's in beta testing at the moment but the um their thinking is is that uh, for instance Lydia Davis the author of this book has refused to go on amazon to have her book on amazon mm. and so this has prompted bookshop.org to add to their uh to their, their offer. And um I, I don't know how it would work in terms of benefiting the independent bookshops if you buy an ebook no. from them. W- that isn't clear yet. No,
1: I don't think it, it my impression is that it doesn't is is separate yeah. to what they offer for independent bookshops. Now um talking about independent bookshops and bookshop dot org, um I have a story as well or were you still on your story?
0: Well no, I mean let me just let me just add some, okay, some cool. context on that then. So um I, I unfortunately can't tell you who the name of this guy because uh, the the first page corrupted somewhat. But anyway, <laughs> this person from Bookshop uh, Book uh, Thingy dot org. <laughs> My brain's gone too much. <laughs> bookshop dot org. Yes, I was right. Uh, we want to give independent bookstores a way to sell eBooks and oh, capture okay. those sales that they are losing to Amazon. Put- so it is actually, and this was a a speech made. At the American Booksellers Association Winter Institute in Seattle, um, Bookshop.org already has strong ties with the independent bookselling community. And uh, beginning on March the first, Indiebound.org, the ABA's uh, consumer-facing online bookselling and marketing platform, will switch to using Bookshop.org to handle sales and fulfillment. Wow! So that's the American Booksellers Association are now jumping in with Bookshop.org completely. And um, it seems – so uh, they estimate – this is, uh, again, uh, bookshop.org uh, the spokesperson uh, – estimating that online sales for independent bookstores, including those that are on bookshop.org, IndieBound, and Shopify, and other platforms, amount to $100 million a year. And uh, Amazon's online sales account for about 4 to $5 billion. Mm-hmm. And so what they're trying to do is capture 10% of that market that Amazon have and then benefit the indie community.
1: Well, my confusion though is that bookshops don't currently sell
0: ebooks. No, that's the point, is that that's what they want to do.
1: But w- why would it be in a publisher's interest to sell ebooks to bookshops to sell on bookshop.org?
0: Well, presumably, you would put your book up on bookshop.org, and you would. I don't know whether the ebook would then feature on the websites of these independent bookshops.
1: I don't know.
0: And I think that's probably what they're trying to do. They create a shopfront which you know you can populate for your local bookshop, and they get a, a share of it. Now, here's the thing that Amazon have over any system out there, and that includes Kobo, which is the sort of next biggest thing, and Barnes and Noble and Waterstones in terms of ebook sales, is that Kindle Unlimited is the thing that anchors us with Amazon at the moment. Absolutely. Because 50% of our revenue comes from the Kindle Unlimited subscription model of people reading pages and us getting, and our authors getting a remuneration for that. And that's gone from about 40% when we started to at least 50% for most of our titles, and some titles as much as 60%. Yeah.
1: No, it's true. Some of our titles obviously appeal to Kindle Unlimited Absolutely. subscribers. so
0: And uh, that is... Monumental. It
1: is monumental. Because and you know,
0: that's something you can't just switch off no. as a revenue stream.
1: No. I mean, well, you can do, but then you're well, you you you, committed.
0: Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult. That's yeah. not to say that it's not at times feeling like an abusive relationship because the number of times, and mm-hmm. again, this week, you've been battling with Amazon for, on behalf of some clients for our ArchPub services. Um, It's really difficult because the system constantly says no.
1: Yeah. Or it just says... That's not. That's not in our jurisdiction. You need to contact your <sighs> publisher. That's what I had this week. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, hang on. We are the publisher yeah. anyway. Uh, yeah. So we we've got still big big problems, and I think this is something that Amazon really need to address. Because look, let's fa- let's face it. As I was flicking through the news stories this week, I, I, I stumbled upon the one that we reported a, a month ago or so, uh, which is that they are shedding jobs around the world and their profits are down. Look, improve. Your relationship with the people who provide you with the revenue, i.e. the creators, mm. in terms of your books, at least, um, and stop messing this about. Yeah. As simple as that. Because there
1: will be a tipping point.
0: There will be a tipping point, And it, it's coming. And, you know, sometimes things get too big, too unwieldy, and they forget that actually it's about satisfying or sorting out things for people. And this is where AI does not work. But increasingly, and I was listening today to um, a report that said that uh, one of the uh, ministers in the current government, who used to be culture secretary, but got demoted, is saying that more government business is going to be done by AIs in future. And I think this is, again, the wrong move.
1: Crikey, we really are turning into a science fiction novel.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it has been inevitable and there are an awful lot of jobs which frankly an ai can do and we all have to adjust to the fact that somehow we need to either do a job that they can't or um society as a whole just sort of uses the ai output and the money it creates and distributes it widely so that people don't you know because they can't work don't have to work you say that
1: but 10 years ago we would have thought a job that ai can't do writing books
0: yeah well that's still jury out but <laughs> it can we can create text that resembles something oh yes yes so it's not okay that. have you got another story
1: well it's it's just related to bookshop.org so um as we know bookshop.org um since its uh founding has done a huge amount to keep independent bookshops going and actually stop them from folding when um, without its existence, especially with the COVID pandemic, a lot of them probably would have gone out of business. So there's a bookshop in Ramsgate, um, a really sweet little bookshop called Books Bodega. It's an indie bookshop and um, it's only been open a year. Bodega.
0: Or... Is it B-O-D-E-G-A?
1: <laughs> Bodega. Bodega. Is that a word? It's Is... a
0: Spanish word, isn't it?
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, yes. Okay. And it's only hasn't even been open a year yet, but. She, the owner, um, Sapphire Bates, has been struggling and she realized that she wouldn't be able to pay her bills. So she just put out a tweet, as you do, just to try something. And she said, I can't pay my bills this month. Please help me. Please go to bookshop.org and buy books on our site and help us to pay the £800 pounds for the bills this month. And she had an overwhelming response with 5.7 million views on her tweet. It was retweeted thousands of times, including by people like Sue Perkins and Ian Ranking. And in fact, she ex- exceeded the sales that she needed. So it's just one of those happy stories, isn't it? Of, There's a of, lot
0: of that about, isn't there? It's a lot about, um, you know, I, I look, I'm, I'm, it's a positive thing in the sense that someone's been saved. And that's great because mm, they must have been.
1: At least for now.
0: For now, yeah. And we've seen this before with bookshops. Mm. Um, but hey, ultimately, uh, we still need people to support bookshops more regularly.
1: Yeah, it's got to be sustained.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. Okay, that's a lovely story. Should we get to our interview? I think we should. Okay, let's talk to Nicole Johnson, who is a book coach. She's also a speechwriter. Has been involved in politics for years and years and years, and, years and worked for the UK government. You think the... it
1: sound old?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, look, she's been focusing on the writing side of things for almost twenty years she, now. Yes, yeah, but, but, but but she was uh, she came over from Australia and worked with the Labour government of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who is we ought to reveal the person that you were thinking about when you you, you have a a, se- a secret fancy for, for for our former Prime Minister and <laughs> oh. Chancellor of the Exchequer. Gordon Brown.
1: Everybody has a secret fantasy that's a bit weird.
0: Yeah, okay. That's pretty weird, though. Um, Anyway.
1: All I'm going to say to you is Katie Hopkins.
0: Yeah, okay. Oh, God, you had to drop that one in. (laughs) Anyway, um, a complete end of the other end of the political spectrum. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it it has to be said that uh, Nicole um, works with people to overcome the issues they have with their writing. And this is something that's sort of grown organically in the last couple of years. But as you'll find out from this interview, which it was, you know, it blew us over and it was just one of these great energetic interviews. We just kindred spirits. And it's
1: another one where we spoke for another hour after. we finished.
0: That's right. That's right. That's true. Uh, But Nicole's got so much to offer and so much wisdom um, in, in the process of, of helping people write books. Let's speak to her. Nicole Johnson. Nicole Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Hobcast book show.
2: It's great to be here thanks for having me.
0: We're uh, we're enormously grateful and it's it's wonderful to speak to you. We you're our first book coach.
2: Yes. Ooh. Our first Fantastic. one. Oh dear, I could put you off them forever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think I think people would be intrigued to know exactly what that involves because you know, when we're traditionally working with our authors, of course, there's a, an element of coaching in the way that we publish. Yeah. And there's also an element where our editors get involved and, and you know, encourage changes. But actually, yeah. book coaching is a different thing altogether. It's it's more about holding a hand, isn't it? And guiding as the words go down on the page, not when the first draft is already there.
2: It, it kind of is. So, so I, I initially thought, I just discovered that I was was coaching people. for for their books. And and so it came about because I was just already doing it. And I have a a, on Facebook, I have a free online writing tribe where I provide advice and things to people who who also, I mean, people just want to gather together, and particularly during COVID, don't they? Writers want to be around people who love writing and books. So I discovered I was doing it, and, and it was a really interesting process because I don't see myself as a writing coach. If you're coming to me and in three years you want to be, or even three months, you want to be the best writer you can be, there are I believe better people than me to do it what I do and do well is get that book finished and I think there's a massive amount of people out there I mean we all know this I think in America um, it's something like 90% of Americans want to write a book And, and, and I think that's probably true across the board Um, and and I just noticed some bizarre map actually it was on the Daily Fail but um, it it was still a really really good map on what dream jobs were all around the world and the first bizarrely was pilot which I think must be about travel it's certainly true for Australia and of course travel agency work was really popular in Australia because we could never get anywhere because it cost too much right Um, but the second was writing and that didn't surprise me at all so I think what I realised is that people have it have it an idea they might even get started but maintaining that motivation and finishing i think is a bit of a forgotten art and also i think we don't give ourselves permission to write so all of a sudden i realized what i was really good at was getting people to finish their books um and it, then people just kept approaching me so so i think in a way it was the people around me that decided and um and I think sometimes, I mean, a lot of my clients are really busy business people and, and actually it's busy people that get things done. And that's that's the truth of it. I think we all have this vision of writing being this lovely, lovely, um, glamorous experience, which hasn't been mine, I have to say, um, <laughs> but also that if you have lots of time, you get lots done. But actually, it's the people that have very little time that get lots done. Um, so I think that's where it kind of came about it felt like I was just already doing it so I changed it from writing coach because I thought you know I have a friend called Andy up north who we were both civil servants and policy advisors back in the day and he um, went off and did his master's in novel writing and screenwriting and he's a writing coach like he is does Mm. he will take you through all of the aspects of writing and of course I will take you through that if you're experiencing a particular difficulty on how to get it written or the style or the tone I can do that but it's really about getting your book finished which right. is an article.
0: Yeah I mean that's that you're right there is a there's a clear definition and, and, and distinction between you know the, the writing element in terms of style and and structure but- i guess uh but getting the motivation and finding the time and, and the methodology to actually get things down on the page mm-hmm. is a different thing altogether and, and actually to
1: that end point which and, is and, a, is and, a, actually you shouldn't underestimate I well, look, how I difficult mean, that
0: is how many how many years have we done this podcast uh two years now and mm. uh people people are well aware that there is a work in progress that has actually not progressed in those two years of mine. Oh, and that is-
2: We need to have another little chat after this. We do,
0: <laughs> we do. It does sound that way. Um, you know, although Rebecca has dangled the- We went to a guitar shop in Brighton and it, I started-
1: This is part of your policy, isn't no,
0: it? I, <laughs> I, no. I, still
1: an orthodox.
0: No, I stood there <laughs> lovingly looking at this Fender Stratocaster and thinking, oh. I really, 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 really want that. And Rebecca was standing on my shoulder going, Um, yeah, you can, I'm not going to stop you, but (laughs) perhaps you'd feel better about buying it once you'd finished your book and printed it. Um,
2: Oh, I like your thinking, Rebecca, and how perfect is it? I mean, geez, that is a huge incentive. That's a huge incentive. Oh, my goodness. That's a huge incentive. If that doesn't do it, I'm not sure what will. Well, a (laughs) a puppy is the other other possible
0: yeah oh, yeah gosh. so
2: you know if have lots lots of the work, I'm
1: gonna dangle the thought of a puppy because you would love a dog wouldn't you yeah would. and you've been oh, talking gosh. about it for months and months and you've, months
2: you've got all the cards here Rebecca that's all I'm <laughs> saying what also you need to ask yourself as well are you so I'm motivated towards something I'm motivated towards seeing the book yeah finished yeah. with my name on it But actually, a lot of people are just motivated by not hitting New Year's Eve and having to put that damn book on their New Year's resolution again, or saying to people when people say, so what's happening with your book? And you go, oh, I'm still writing. (laughs) <laughs> so sometimes it's also understanding that motivation you know have you got to that point where you're fed up telling people you're writing it and you haven't done it or uh, or is it just seeing your name on that book and it being out there and I personally don't think I mean I think there's a rare and amazing satisfaction in writing a book and finishing it and publishing it I I, I think it, it's it's just something that can never ever be taken away that's true
1: nowadays publishing is so much easier isn't it because you know people can publish it themselves Mm. so that's not the barrier so much I think as it used to be used to be you know you wrote your book and then you've got this enormous mountain of finding somebody who's willing to publish it
2: yeah yeah Um, I mean people think once the book's done that's the hard bit I mean for you guys that's not the hard bit you know that you you know what you're doing and that but yeah no it is it is really really difficult but I personally think that, that it's, you know, I'm no fan of Amazon or it's the organisation, but it's democratised um, publishing. And, and, you know, none of us are under any illusions when some of the, the celebrities being published really should not be published and are not, in fact, even writing their own stuff. Now, I'm a ghostwriter, so I have no issue with that. I write for busy people who don't have the time to learn to write themselves. Um, but you know, it also we know that the quality isn't necessarily in the public in the traditional publishing anymore. But it's the, you know, uh, one of my coaching clients who who discovered she she was unwell and decided she was not waiting eighteen months for her book to be published, just self published, and she's done brilliantly. Um, you know, every time I start to think about self-publishing, my brain just goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, not doing that, not doing that, not interested." <laughs> um, but she just she she taught herself to do it, and I was super impressed. Mm-hmm. And she's really good at it. Um, and then there's also guys like you. There's indie publishers out there. There's a lot of and digital publishers which, which just didn't seem to exist five minutes ago.
1: Mm, it it is true so many more options and you can do both at the same time as well you might decide one of your books that you've written is more suited for traditional but you've got this idea that you want to keep control on and and do yourself so yeah it's so much so different to what it was when I started working and publishing
0: it's interesting you're saying that your coaching side of things was organic in the way that it started up and that people gravitated towards you because I mean presumably I did some executive coaching training and never really put it into practice with the BBC before I left. And some of that was about really asking the right questions Mm. and listening to the answers and encouraging people to think for themselves. Is that really the approach that you take is, is, is that, does that cover what happens when you're book coaching?
2: Yeah, no, I think so. To be honest, we, we, I think people get embarrassed about it and also particularly if they're business people and they're good at what they do, a bit, you know. But actually, once you're stuck, you will know this. Because when you're in the middle of that book, you can be completely lost. And I think what has happened is it was organic, that I was going, well, okay, try this, let's try this, you know, and and these things were working. And, and of course, every time I sit in front of it, I think what if this person's going to come up with something I haven't dealt with yet? But actually that this doesn't happen because as humans, we are very, very similar. So what might need to be tweaked is why you're choosing at some level not to prioritise your writing. So that's the bit I need to get to. That's the bit I need to understand. And actually, as often when people start talking to me, they can see what it is themselves and we don't give ourselves permission I mean I'm exactly the same my ghostwriting and book coaching stuff comes first which inevitably means my own writing comes last so you know I'm also having that exact same challenge you are and trying to and yet I follow my own advice I write every day it's just not always on my stuff right mm. so it's it, it, you know it is about finding and even with myself finding what's the answer to that what's the answer to that balance and I think too you you are not in different places to me you speak to writers all the time so you're kind of subliminally picking up the mes- the messages and what what we're telling what authors tell themselves and and as an author yourself you you get it you, you know yourself that actually it, it it also sometimes the answer can be simple but you need to be reminded of it every time I go to write a memoir I go back and I read through the rules of a memoir And people think I'm crazy, but actually those are the bits we need to be reminded of. Mm. You know, those are the bits we need to, I imagine I will be 96 and still learning how to write.
1: I think that's true. Because also things change and trends change and um, what people um, relate to changes over time anyway. So it's Mm. always good to try and be on top of all that.
0: I'd like to know about your
1: ghostwriting actually, um, because I've kind of, I suppose you call it ghost writing. Ghost written a couple of books, non-fiction books, and one was called "The Best Dad Ever." That was actually written by me, but the, the 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 author had to be a bloke. He's called Tim.
2: <laughs> so, so you created the author and the story.
1: Well, it was for a publisher. Um, uh, that's, based that's in...
2: just kind of awesome. And and yeah. I don't think you can kind of ghost write. I think you kind of do or you don't. And it sounds like you did. yes Yes, I
1: did yeah so but that so they commissioned me to write it and then they chose the name of the author and published it under this imaginary person's name it's not a real person fascinating so you had to (laughs)
2: almost create the character so you could speak in their voice oh that is fascinating and I absolutely absolutely love doing it and I would love to do more so you know I wouldn't how did you get into ghostwriting again I had someone said it to me I am a little bit thick so sometimes I do things and I don't really realize I'm doing them and all of a sudden someone said you've spent 20 years writing on behalf of senior cabinet ministers and adopting (laughs) their different tones and stuff and and you know sometimes you're dumbing it down and then when there was Gordon Brown where you were really having to up your game yeah or there was Boris where just short really really short and (laughs) two or three word sentences so you you in a way I sat back and realized I did it and I realized the other challenge was finishing a book length product and I had done that for myself and for other people you know and I sat back and thought wow they're right I actually do this and then I I, I realized as I speak to people um, and I've been thinking a lot about this recently because there was a debate on LinkedIn about you know is it important to capture the author's voice or tone and I was like well you're not a ghost <laughs> the author's voice and tone like anybody can write a book and stick it under somebody else's name right and then it just reads like them but actually as you start to get to know people you start to to sit with the way they speak. And and there are some cheats, obviously, some expressions and things they use. But actually you really do start to, I don't know, I was thinking about I'm quite good at languages and I wondered whether it's that mimicry or or whether there's some sort of acting thing, which is fascinating with what you did, whether we are actually kind of almost semi-adopting another person's um character as we do it and i mean my clients could not be more different <laughs> <laughs> Which entertains the Gemini, and I don't know if you know about numerology, but I'm a five. We need change. We can't be doing the same thing all the time. Mundane just does not.
0: I'm a Gemini. The Gemini, yeah. I
2: don't know that I'm a five. Yeah, we enough. need
1: variety, right? He's great mm-hmm. at mimicry, don't
0: you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of names. I'm not going to do a Gordon no, Brown.
1: See Gordon Brown. We we have a oh, bit of special. Well, I have a bit
2: of a special thing for Gordon Brown because. <laughs>
0: He finds it very attractive.
2: No, I, I so agree, love. by the way. I find him very... I love an intelligent bloke with a social justice bent, and frankly, he's not a bad-looking fella. No. I worked with him, and I thought he was pretty attractive, frankly.
1: Well, I once had a dream about Gordon Brown. And a couple
0: of in quite,
1: quite familiar with each other. This was years ago. Yeah, no, I
2: have to know.
0: Apparently, he's a great kisser. <laughs>
2: Really? Well, I have to say that my work didn't extend that far, but of course the competition was the absolutely stunningly beautiful and wonderful Sarah Brown. So I didn't get a sense that he ever, oh, and what a joy that was, working for a politician who really only wanted to kiss his own wife. Um, yes, after Boris, season, yeah. that was a dream. <laughs> never had to worry about waking up and finding out who else he was having a baby with. <laughs> right,
0: right. So we're, we're referring to Boris there, I guess. Yes, we yeah. Oh,
2: I no, definitely not Gordon Brown. No, definitely no. Not. Gordon, I, Gordon I know Brown's lovely, but I, I, I loved. Working I was gifted with him. a mug with Gordon Brown on it you, my you got,
0: Why don't you go and get it? Oh, I don't know where it is Oh, okay. Nice. Well, <laughs> I've got a sort of Toby
2: mug. I love that. Well, he, do you know what I loved about working with him is every it, it, I got to like him more and more, and mm. I have to say and respect him more and more, and that mm. definitely does not happen in politics. It's very rare to find someone that more you find out about them the more you think gosh wow I remember my first meeting with him was with White House officials and I'd said to the the uh, special advisor at the time he's he's now Lord Wood Stuart Wood and great really really accessible I went to him and I have been here for two weeks if he asks me a question I'm going to go eh <laughs> you know he said please rescue me i didn't have to worry at all we sat in there he had them eating out of his hands and these were guys that briefed george bush twice a week and they came out and said he's awesome we've never met anyone like him and i went on one hand i was like yeah he is and on the other hand i was like you're that superpower and you've never met one as awesome as him <laughs> you know, yeah. that's really
3: worrying.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, we lack politicians of depth to that degree at the moment, right? you know, oh,
1: totally. Yeah. Uh,
0: and it's very interesting every time that it's a rare occasion when he en- enters public debate nowadays, maybe every three months or something, he'll say something and it's absolutely nailed on every single time. And, um, you know, whereas dare I say it, his, uh, his as well, colleague, Lord Blair, uh, is is he lord no i can't remember now anyway tony blair will enter the the debate and say something outlandish like the id card thing
2: yeah i was (laughs) supposed to so i had worked in australia with two blokes kim beasley and george uh, sorry jeff Gallup. jeff was um tony blair's best man at their wedding they were each and and you know they knew each other really well so when I first came over here I was supposed to work with Blair and when I contacted Jonathan Powell he sent me a letter saying I'm so sorry but we're a sitting government you've come over too late the positions are gone and I was really upset about it Mm. um, because I knew that both Kim had given me a written reference and I knew that Jeff had spoken to him and um, I am eternally grateful because after Iraq I lost respect I uh, couldn't get past it. And also, I just don't think I'd have had the constructive relationship with Brown and his advisors, because we print in principle absolutely on the same on the same wavelength and I think that showed he really wanted to do things for people who were low income and disadvantaged and that was what drove me so here I am doing special policy in an economic policy unit and stepping on department stories all over the place and loving it because we we felt like we could change the world so I was really grateful um not to have worked with Blair
0: yeah mm. yeah I can see that mm. I mean I I covered the '97 Labour conference that just won the election. It's in mm-hmm. Brighton, and I was uh, the local reporter for Brighton, so I got to go to all the the things. And what happened that week was that Blair uh, had nothing else to do, waiting for his big speech, and so oh. it kept bundling in on every other minister's visit. So that you know, you always do the setup, don't you? You go, um, and, and on one occasion, it was Blunkett was going to see somewhere that was disadvantaged white hawk estate i think it was and blair tags along and takes all the camera time yeah, he does. uh Cherie was with him and uh i just rem- i do remember this he he got a question he couldn't answer so mm. the first question from this um this community panel was a was a, a mother with a little baby who was at this point crawling across the table trying to get Cherie's pearls <laughs> from her neck right <laughs> and she's going kind of, I want to know, Mr Blair, I want to know what you're going to do. You say you're going to be tough on crime, but my washing went missing last week for the third time in a month. What are you going to do about them? who's taking and they're washing off my line and sorry i'm pointing i'm just getting gesticulation <laughs> here. Get it? You yeah. guys, well you know um i'm not sure yeah I, mean, I say I'm, good. I'm gonna be tough on crime obviously but i i can't really specifically be tough on people stealing clothes off a line but you know mm-hmm. um I'll, I'll pass it on to the relevant minister and we'll see what we can do and, you, know, oh, he's you, are good you are
2: good good. <laughs> is yes
0: <laughs> big smile yeah. and And couldn't answer exactly well, cool
2: what his policy was and and you know th- th- this i he did this when I was working with him, and and I am a bullshit madam, and you know, so I know that will surprise you. So I got a call from someone who shall remain nameless, who I really liked at number ten, who I really rate. and um, he said, "I've heard that you're you know doing this, and I just want you to know that the Prime minister is happy to speak at that event." And I went, ah, oh, thank you so much. Hung up the phone. and went over my dead body. <laughs> yeah, Brown's, yeah, yeah. Done, Brian, Brown's done the time. He's done, and and so many. I was having this conversation with a taxi driver the other day. So many of what Blair is attributed with having achieved were Brown's mm. ideas. Yeah. Yes. And, um, I mean, I have no time for Tony Blair. To me, he was never Labour, and and he shouldn't have been there. Um, and I yet yeah, really I mean I was at Ben Elton concert in Australia in 97 just after they'd been elected and mm. it must have been really exciting being in Brighton we just were he stood up and said it's the first time I've ever done a, a show in Australia where we've had a Labour Party in government and the place went wild mm. so he, he had a long way to fall and he fell. <laughs> back. The whole way as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, I had no time for it. Bizarre, I did really like Cherie Chir- Shara, Chir- Sheree Blair. I yeah. and also I was astounded by off, off camera how beautiful she is. She yeah. really looks rubbish on camera, but actually <laughs> she's she's really quite beautiful. Um, you know, a whole other ball game to, to Sarah, obviously. Um, but yeah, wow. You are good at mimicry. I'm really oh, impressed well, thank you. by that. Well, that, so, if my theory, my Michael Caine at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I'm not doing that
0: now. I'm not doing that now. People have heard that too often. <laughs> but the the embarrassing thing is when you're doing um, an event like that and and dealing with David Blunkett, who I really respected in many respects, mm-hmm. but trying to get him to point the right way for the camera was near impossible. And actually, I had mm-hmm. to break protocol and actually put both hands on his shoulders because I'd say initially I'd be going right. Okay, well the cameras just to your left and he would do a 45 degree turn yeah. uh, so uh, and then okay right well and um, for people who aren't familiar with david blunkett if outside the uk uh david blunkett was home secretary at the time and was blind and oh, you, off.
1: See, i was in japan so i don't remember uh,
0: but but then i would i would say right okay uh, mr Blunkett, if you could just turn back the other way a little bit and then he would do another 45 do 90 degrees oh, yeah. so he'd be pointing you know off sideways again so actually, i actually had to physically put my hands on his shoulders and turn around he could see the 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 uh uh the security detail bristling you know and it, uh, he was charming actually really charming the person i got the most too, rise when
2: at. was that though because I, I his charm definitely waned for me when i was in australia i said to chris my husband i i could work for him when he was education minister yeah. but then of course he he became a bit of a head kicker for for blair on on kind of immigration stuff
0: oh, to and degree, i had yeah. to,
2: to babysit him in a <laughs> yeah, event and I found him really difficult.
0: I Did you? Him... Well, on that occasion, I think they would. I think it's possibly not during the um, the already. The, it was during the election, so he was visited Brighton was a, was a real important battleground because it was all Tory, mm-hmm. and afterwards it went all Labour, all three seats. Yes, um, so that's
2: what I'm, I'm. really struggling with that because I would have thought that Brighton was Labour. Yeah, no, no, yeah, was, I know it, it
0: was true blue Tory for decades. i
2: surprised
1: by yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and then. The, Demographic shift happened uh, in the, you know, through the 90s, really. But the, the other <laughs> the other occasion was during that election campaign. Um, I had to uh, attend a, a rally on Brighton Pier with John Prescott. And that day, um, the TUC, the Scottish TUC were meeting up in Scotland, were saying that they were going to demand that the new Labour government, should they get in, would allow secondary picketing to be reestablished which had been banned by the, the conservatives. And so um, uh, I got a phone call from the national, uh, you know, bro- uh, desk, news desk in London, get a question in from, it was Millbank or whatever they were phoning me and going, right, we need a, we need you to get a question to Mr. Prescott about this.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so his uh, advisors came up to me just before the interview and uh, we're on the Brighton pier and it'd been a complete Farago and he's got all his um, Supporters round him and all this sort of thing, and they say, "Right, what are you going to ask him?" And I just fibbed and said, "Well, I guess I'll ask him some local stuff." So you could see they went back to him. He gets his little check sheet out of all the stuff he wants to talk about. And that's
2: a tick. Local issues are fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, literally, he was cribbing as just before I got to him. And then my opening question is uh, about the Scottish TUC um, pressure, and he got completely flustered mm-hmm. and and lost it. And I'll tell you. <laughs> we got ten points here for the election. That's what people want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the Scottish TUC. And by the way, I love Brighton. He's talking to the big crowd here. I yeah, used to yeah, come yeah. here with my family, and I, you know, all of that sort of thing. At that point, I got God love that, him. That was the one question I got, and then then I had this this fin- feeling of two arms hooking my because I'm holding the microphone as I am talking to you now, yeah. and they hooked me and pulled me back out yeah,
3: you're right of out range,
0: there. and that was it. One question. <laughs> and a <laughs> fluster two minutes of him blustering his way through it it was fantastic oh, i do Look. love that i do love that
2: and and i mean you know that i guess that was the other thing about brown i i can't i used to sit there and think i don't, you know i am not stupid you know i had two degrees by then in politics and i am sitting there just thinking i could work for 50 years and not know everything you know mm. and i think that that really Because I just always assumed that the Prime Minister should be cleverer than me. And so when I find myself in a position where, gosh, the last five (laughs) haven't been, I mean, it it does disturb you, right? It kind of pulls the rug out, you think. But, But I kind of assumed we're in safe hands, yeah, um, it's a bit not. worrying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I can imagine. I mean, I, I, I wasn't a fan by the time I, I was um doing the David Blunkett thing, and I didn't find him easy. Um, but he was a fundamentally different person, I think, than what he had been. Yes, I, I felt his principles shifted massively. And as the an education minister, I used to think he was brilliant. I mean, watching from Australia, I used to think he was great.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to the ghostwriting then. In terms of Ooh. when you're when you're working with a client, and we've talking about that getting the voice right. Mm-hmm. So, w- what is that line you dance? Um, you know, because uh, I I know a, a a leading ghostwriter as well as a, a university colleague of mine, and, and he used to be a broadcaster, and he does a lot of this stuff.
2: Oh wow, yeah.
0: Uh, Tony Horn is his name, and um, he he spends a lot of time with the client. I mean, hours and hours and hours of conversations. Is that the process that you go through? That,
2: that That's how I do it. So so basically I, I meet someone, they tell me what their book is about, who their market is. Uh, we kind of look at it, you know, so a business book is going to be somewhere between kind of 30 and 50 or 30 and 60,000. Often they're going to be self-published. So the, the amount doesn't matter or the other, End of it is is kind of the memoirs, which are big. You know, they're big stories, and you know everybody thinks they want to write an autobiography. And just for the tip, pretty much nobody wants to write an autobiography. So unless you're, I don't know, David Attenborough, nobody cares about your autobiography. A memoir is I have a message, and these are the stories that are relevant to that message. And I think that's the first thing I have to say to people. So then I will yeah. sit down. Once we've done that, I look at what they want to talk about and and what they want to say and if it's a memoir I need to break up their their life into to kind of parts and so I, I usually do it in parts and then with chapters underneath so I get a basic outline of the book whatever it is and then I will spend the the next six to eight weeks gathering content and that is pretty much not completely but pretty much all on zoom so you know I can spend two or three hours a session and and there can be depending on how many clients I've got at a time there can be a couple of sessions a week so you are you really have to trust the person that you're speaking to and I cannot I mean if I had a pound for every person that says to me I've never told anyone that before and you know so despite it being zoomed the the and i do say that to people when they come to speak to me one of my clients calls me the anti marketing machine <laughs> Excuse me, because they go up to me and I say, okay, fine, but you're going to have to spend five months with me. So I'm going to introduce you to these other ghostwriters and you need to decide who you can spend, you know, five months with. And he keeps going, oh, for heaven's sake, <laughs> I just <laughs> can you just write my book? So basically, once I've done that, then you gather the content. And with memoirs, you do tend to start chronologically. And I think that doesn't matter. Where you start also doesn't matter. Because at that stage, you can write all the bits in whatever order you want. At some point, you're going to have to fill in the gaps. And then I will draft up chapter one. And we will back back and forward until the client is happy with chapter one. But by the time I've drafted chapter one, I've often spent a month or six weeks with them. And therefore, the it somehow seems to reduce the chances they're going to hate it. And I'm really clear, I'm robust, I am not going to care. If you send this back and say, I hate this,
3: Mm. that's
2: okay with me. And even if you don't know what you hate about it, we'll just try something else. But I think the value, and and it sounds like this is what what your colleague does as well, you know, by the time you've got there, you do have a sense of what it is they're trying to say. And even if you haven't quite grasped what the book is fundamentally about and that's the other thing I'd say by the time you finish that book it's not always about what you thought it was about you know Mm. so I always kind of have a working title but that changes all the time so that that's kind of how I do it and that's how it seems to work and for people that are busy some of them prefer to record and just send me stuff through or send me stuff they've written or whatever but yeah I I mean that Every ghostwriter has their own process, but that works best for me.
3: Mm.
2: Do you know what it reminds me of?
1: Painting a portrait. If you're going to paint someone's portrait, you want to spend hours with them to get a
2: feel for them. It's a bit like that and think? their expressions yeah, it, yeah yeah it somehow feels like you do get to know them, and it's intense I mean I, mm. I you know imagine on these 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 reality reality shows where you're shoved in a room with someone for two weeks you get to know them much more than in a different circumstance um but yeah that's what works best for me and so I find the chapter one which is the most difficult chapter of all of them I find that actually a lot it, 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 isn't as difficult to get the tone and voice right because you're becoming familiar with them. Mm-hmm.
1: But do you find they speak to you when you're trying to sleep
2: at night because you spent time with them <laughs> in your head? And I did, I did, you know the whole writing thing. I have to say, it's it, when you were saying you had that idea in the kitchen. I mean, or the for me, it's the shower because of course I can't write down the idea if I get there. The, so it would make absolute sense that your best ideas would happen and. <laughs> Um yeah, I find that really frustrating. And also if I've been working on a client's book, because I write late at night, as I said to you the other day, I write oh, yeah. really late at night. So lying there, just sitting there with this story going through my head and thinking, I probably do need to sleep at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so they do kind of live with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what what thing that strikes me, and uh, the the difficulty I could see doing this is as a journalist i would have to mug up and um have a wide appreciation of lots of things but Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with someone one of your business clients writing a ghost book or whatever it is they have a particular expertise in the world they understand Mm -hmm. so how much work do you have to put in at that stage of approaching that client to understand what their you know their their world so that you build that empathy and they can you know you're not having to sort of keep it stopping and saying, um, just a moment, you've used an acronym there. Can you clarify that for me? Is, is, is that part of the process too?
2: Well, yes and no. And in fact, you're a Gemini, so you'll kind of get this. So we're really good at knowing lots, of, a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah? yeah, we're we're very much kind of jack of all trades and we can adapt. And and actually mm-hmm. where this comes in is also we are very curious. We like to understand, you know, and so therefore um, and also having the variety of clients, you, you, you just kind of so. At the moment, I'm I'm dealing with a special forces person. I've I've got this amazing client. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I am really lucky. I've only ever had one. Terrible client, Um, (laughs) divorced quickly, Um, but one special forces, another who's, who's, you know, got an OBE for her contribution to film and television and bought black and Asian television into the UK and, and isn't even a footnote under all of those old white blokes that took the credit for her work. And another Mm -hmm. who I've just finished her book on Chinese horoscopes and dating, which was so fun. And now we're doing Feng Shui. So, what I, I, there have always been, there's been moments like, uh, you know, one of my clients, she's just met all these amazing people. And I have to keep going back and say who was that? Who was that? I mean, I record it with, with Otter and I will put little question marks. And then special forces. I don't know anything about guns. I don't know what different types of bombs there are. But actually what the advantage he said was, one, That's what these books are all full of. They're all full of Superman. They're all full of all this stuff. And he said, I don't want it to be like that because I was very upfront with him. And to be honest, when he contacted me and said he wanted to write a book on the SAS, I said, I'm a raving lefty pacifist. I'm not your
3: girl. (laughs) So
2: we met and I was so fascinated by how different he was to what I expected him Mm. to be. Mm that we've ended up not only am I writing this book, but we we have become friends, which mm. just blows my mind. And I'm forever going, yeah, treat me like I'm sick. So, you know, what's the difference between the artillery fire you did and the mortar fire?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, I, I bet you're great on a quiz team. Well, do you know, except my memory is terrible. Don't <laughs> tell anyone that. But I'm... I, I, <laughs> I am rubbish on a quiz too. However, my editor is apparently amazing. She lives in Suffolk, and I did say, I've "Got a quiz down here. You're going to have to come down and give us a chance." <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I. I but it, it, it is. I think, um, yes, you do have to go deep. I mean, and I keep having to remind my uh, feng shui client that I don't get it actually and and so you are going to have to tell me and I will do my own research but the only other thing about that sort of thing is that the, the interpretations are quite different and she's dug really deep into it so she's you know she's got a real solid knowledge of it. Mm. Um, it, it but actually there's a part of me that enjoys it but I do my criteria as they come to the party if I'm researching your price is different so yeah. while I will build my understanding because that matters to me to get it right, you are bringing the content to me and your your contract is based on you providing me with the content. Yeah. Uh, and thus far that hasn't been an issue at all.
0: That's fair enough. I mean, I, I, I guess that... Uh, <sighs> Gosh, I, I've lost my question now. I'm going to throw this bit <laughs> just, just
2: Oh, no, Adrian, you make me feel so much better because that's been happening to me a lot in the last year or so. I
0: mean, what's, what is this thing that, you know, well, when you don't Well, it just goes poof and it goes... Because yeah, right, the gone. problem is you, so, you, and I you say something
2: else and then you're
0: off, we flick. It's like
2: walking from one room to another. It's actually... Physiologically, prove that if you walk from this room with the thought, and you walk into the next room, it will go because your perspective is shifted. That is so just, yeah, just yeah. I, I'm just blaming the fact that we got COVID on moving day. So, <laughs> oh,
0: oh <God>. no, on oh, <laughs> moving
2: day, that's not good. <laughs>
0: it was that's deadly. The most fun I've ever had. Let's talk about your fiction then, um, because you, as you've already said, you know, other things take precedence currently in your writing world. So. <sighs> How, and and in a sense, it must be there must be an element of. Um, I mean, I don't ascribe too much imposter syndrome to you, but there must be an element of. Hang on a second, I'm telling people how to get through their books, but I'm not doing it myself. Is that, is, is, that, is that a factor?
2: There, there, there really is, and I and I like to think it's that. Do you know what? I wouldn't want to go to a skinny personal trainer or a you know a, who's never ever struggled with their weight or their fitness or whatever. And I just have to hope that that's how people feel. That you know, if actually writing's easier for them, they pump out books all over the place. But they're not someone that uh, are going to have experienced the challenges. I have exactly the perfect job, and that the, the balance isn't right. It really isn't right, and I and and that's what this year is about tweaking how I get it right because I I, lit, I met up with a, a few friends uh, writing friends that I went an Arvon course with, gosh mm. we think it was two thousand and seven that's how long ago it is, and um, it, it, we haven't met since before COVID and we were all talking about how all of us write, but just finding the time to justify our creative writing is very difficult. Now, what I think is the big deal with that, and I've been having this conversation with people recently, is what makes me love writing is that first draft. That that So at the moment, I am in redrafts, stage for two of my own books and three ghostwriting projects so I'm actually in the bit I really do not like <laughs> Oh god, yeah. in the muddy bit <laughs> and then you just feel a bit stuck you don't it, you know there's a real satisfaction when I finished yesterday yesterday this this client's last chapter and sent it off to her I went oh great and I've sat down with someone recently who's one of my coaching clients actually when we were talking through she's the one that's just self-published the most amazing debut novel real gone kid by Kathleen Fredrickson and it's 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 brilliant it you know you've that's the other thing I've started to realize is that there's in my head I don't have the publishing background but in my head I can tell a good story and hers was a really good story and you very rarely meet someone whose debut novel is that good. You know, Mm. most of us, me included, have to write a few that are rubbish before we get to something that's worth publishing. Mm. Um, But I, you know, I have to get that balance right because that's what feeds my joy. And so, you you know, I'm talking to you at this point where I've sat down with this person and bizarrely they've come back to me and realised there is a gap in March in my diary where I can sit down and get the redraft of my cosy crime off to this digital publisher who I'd love to work with. Um, and then I can start my next one. I can justify starting the next one because that's the bit I love. And, and you know, you must have the same thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is, and, and all I will say is that is my target for getting it right this year. Yes. So the rest is in place. I just haven't got the balance quite right. Um, but, you know, I think, too, I grew up in the 80s. I'm terribly A-type. We get our work done first.
0: Yeah, mm, yeah. But... No, it's
1: true. Same same for me. Well, a
0: little bit like that Yeah,
2: for me. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same. Well, but yeah, you need for to be teaching me how to do it. I am missing it a lot, and I think my writing isn't as good when I'm not having that creative outlet. So yeah. it, it, um, I'm very, I think what happened is I set aside to draft over Christmas, got COVID on leaving day, then got meningitis, then got a kidney infection, and then got some gut thing. And so there was all my five or six weeks that I'd set aside to yeah, re so, yeah, Right. And and you know, I you know, we'd not had COVID for three years and I knew it wasn't gonna be good when I got it. And it was one of our friends helping us move, so we couldn't even be cranky about it. Um but <laughs> right. we basically just fried my brain. So all this yeah. time that I thought I had. So actually I do think I'll get it right. And as as Pete, you know, as my husband, who's he's really great, he just keeps saying, okay, so it's just a bit delayed. You know, yeah. But I, 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 I would say to everyone out there, you, you do need to be getting some of the joy out of it because some of writing is just a drudge. Mm,
3: that's
2: um, true. And you know, you, you need to know the bits you love, the bits you don't love, and also I, I just bully myself. I mean, we've got a ten-minute method in the tribe, so, and I do follow my own advice, which is I don't do it in any other area of my life, just in writing, but. 10 with the 10 minute method. If you're really busy, and this could really help you as well, Adrian, is don't edit, don't review, don't research in that 10 minutes. Just drop those words down, just get them down. Don't even think about whether they're good or not. You're going to have to edit them anyway, even if they're brilliant, you're going to have to edit them. But if you most of us write at 40 words a minute, that's the average person. You're not the average person. You're probably going to write much, much faster than that. That means 400 words in 10 minutes, 2,800 words in a week with just over a week with just over an hour's investment. You've done that book in six months. Even if you've written none, you've done that book in six months. That's
0: it's a fair point. And of course, you know, being a journalist and broadcast journalist to boot, I had to write incredibly quickly. And yeah, indeed, you, you would have done you when you were writing speeches. uh you know you get you get a couple of hours notice that so-and-so has decided to go and speak to wy in nottingham and they need something bang you've got to knock it out and uh, so it's
2: playing to all of your all of your skills all of your experience and yeah and and i'll tell you this right here and now if you write in bursts you may finish your book if you write 10 minutes a day or more say you sit down you do your 10 minutes and here's where it's beautiful If you sit down for that 10 minutes and it's like walking through treacle and you're hating every second of it, it's 10 minutes. You can bully yourself to do 10 minutes. But what will happen is this, I don't know if you've heard of this Jim Collins flywheel effect, building momentum. The more you turn up for that 10 minutes, the advantages are those creative juices juices keep going. You also don't sit down and go, I've got this long and I just have to remember where I'm at. So I've spent all of my writing time trying to reacquaint myself with my book. But when you, and Maya Angelou is right, the more you use that creative juices, the more it comes. It doesn't run out. It gets better and better. And, you know, I had this project manager in my writing tribe who said, look, I, I think this theory is complex. I think it does. not I don't think <laughs> 10 minutes can possibly be enough. Anyway, I said, fine, give me a week and do it. Oh, my God, he is its greatest advocate. Now. <laughs> That's
3: amazing.
2: I love that. And it, it, do you know what it is? It's, it's in its simplicity because if you can force yourself not to censor or edit yourself in that 10 minutes, you also get the joyful bit back and you start seeing that word count going. And as I say, even if you're the best writer in the world, you're going to have to edit. So what's the difference if that 10 minutes is rubbish?
0: True. That's very wise. Yeah, 30 minutes? This uh, yeah absolutely brilliant. This feels like the moment we should bring in the random question. Um, but I want to, but 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 actually, you know, I'm going to postpone it just for a second. So uh-huh. you know, on TED Talks, because I I want to ask. I mean, I was uh, I'm always intrigued, given that you've got a method and you've worked very thoughtfully about all of these aspects. Are there any tools that you use i mean i think you mentioned some 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 type of software or something when you're doing your interviews uh, with your clients I, and stuff like with
2: that. the ghostwriting absolutely so i i love zoom i i, I have I, I am i feel like i build a connection with people on zoom and and, and i used to use skype and you know all power to you, skype but it was rubbish yeah (laughs) i record it i i drop it into otter.ai now there's loads of transcription services otter just works for me and also you can do this where you link it up so say we're having an appointment but i've organized it and i'm recording it i can tell otter and it will do the background stuff so then it transcribes which is often very interesting especially Mm -hmm. if there's lots of different accents Yes. Um. And what I will, and and that just gives me it, it. So if I go back, I can remember everything that's been said, and that's the tr- we will remember the bits we you know that that stand out, but we don't remember the detail. And it, then I can also listen. So Otter, so I can click on something that says something random, and you think, well, that can't be what they said, and you can click on it and then hear what they actually said in that bit. So it's not perfect. I will say that with one of my clients, he had someone who I didn't even think sounded a bit like him, and Otter just could not work out. It's only ever happened once, but could not work out which one of them was saying it, which was deeply frustrating. Um, but it, it, I think that's brilliant. Um, I, what else do I? I'm, I'm really. I'm a terrible technophobe. Mm. So I use words to be honest. I, yeah. I am not exotic. Um if I if I have to do a plan, it's in words. Um, I've been talking to a fabulous um, author called Claire Sheldon and, and Marion Todd. I don't know if you know Marion Todd, but yes. she is master of planning. She is, she, she, her process and I look at it in wonder, but I am such a pantser, but Claire Sheldon's playing with Excel and she's a pantser. So I'm watching with Gated. I mean, I'm never going to do it on Excel because I ain't going <laughs> you
0: know, to happen no. Um,
2: it's just I do not my husband bizarrely is an expert on it and he can make it do anything but yeah I don't like it um but I did download this lifetime supply of something called plotter that I am yes ah. doing yeah
0: with. we've talked to plotter yes plotter on the they were on a few weeks ago yeah
2: really and because <laughs> and mm. it, it, it seems one of the issues I'm finding is I don't have the tolerance with tech so if I have to learn it I'm not going to do it um because I'm just not interested enough I'd rather just get it Done. yeah but but plotter seems, and I I say this with huge hesitation because I haven't used it a lot it seems quite simple Mm. and that for me will be the attractive bit I've actually need to redraft so I'm not doing it before the draft what I'm doing is going back to make sure that the plot points work and in crime as you know yes they have to work I sent it off to the digital publisher, I have to say, having thought that I had lined it all up beautifully and completely missed an entire like major, there were only three major clues and I missed one of them completely. (laughs) And I only felt better when Emma Christie, who's also an awesome crime writer, said, I did that. (laughs)
0: well no I mean I think I think you're right I mean you know I mean we're not we're not bringing up plotter um, unnecessarily and we're not getting paid for it but that was the thing I that struck me for for someone with my brain type and attention deficit disorder it was right in the way you know right squarely where I needed it in terms of being simple to understand and to uh, populate with the stuff I wanted to put in it Um, I haven't signed up for it permanently yet but yeah. It, it feels I mean, like that,
2: the, the, when I looked at it, it was the lifetime was crazy cheap and I just thought oh well yeah. I won't have to think about it again did you say do you actually have attention deficit yes I do yeah so, so I wonder I, and it's irrelevant to me now I think but I have always had a very very odd brain and I, I, this is not going to go somewhere you don't want to go on this podcast <laughs> it's very, very but all through my degrees and all through my writing i have always had to have the television on when I write
3: Mm.
2: and I think it's because part of my brain has to be entertained for me to concentrate and I spoke to a friend of mine whose child is ADHD and she said some of those things and that is exactly with me if you I remember this lovely digital publisher telling me how the Amazon algorithm worked and honestly I couldn't even pretend to be interested it was like my brain, brother- <laughs> no I am not going there and I can't force it to go there. So I just have to, so I said, okay, clearly I am never going to get this. And I wonder, I've always wondered, you know, so, it, and I would say this to people sometimes I took a lot of flack in my degrees for watching TV while I was, mm. and I can't be watching subtitles, obviously. That is just no. too complicated. Um, but you know, if I can't, if I have Vera or something on in the background, I and I will get frustrated if there's nothing on the telly that is going to entertain that part of my brain so that I can write.
0: Right. I, I'm to- totally with you. No, I mean no, I no. have to have uh, I usually have my headphones on, or I will even have YouTube running on my phone while I'm doing it. Well, um, I've been,
1: I've been binge-watching Waterloo Road while working.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, okay, so it is maybe it is a thing. And and it I think that's thing. what's interesting, is that did some of us have found strategies with and, and i had it never really occurred to me but when i sat down and spoke with this friend of mine she went gosh they're really quite you know they sound a lot like and also i just don't have the tolerance for information that doesn't interest me yes yeah. totally <laughs> totally my boredom threshold is non-existent well, and absolutely. yet i never well, get bored because i read and write
0: yeah that's that's exactly that's my experience it's, of my it's, life
1: it's hyper focus on the things you want to be focused on
0: and things start, i mean for yep. me you know thinking about my sort of the dissolution of my bbc career of 25 years was when i got moved i uh, had a new boss who was a uh, a disciple of absolute silence at the workplace
3: oh
1: god um,
0: was, even oh though god. we're in a busy newsroom Just
1: couldn't do it you either. know
0: open plan newsroom we're doing sports news he would always be asking people to be quiet sit, and he he measured your productivity and how Long you were sat down, so oh, that's
2: just and by another name.
0: Yeah, and I couldn't do it because I'm a I'm a great one for jumping in and out of my chair. I'm zebedee, mm-hmm. um, and I much preferred it when I was running around, sort of plate spinning, in a yes, journalistic yes. environment. And then when
2: you burst, you burst good yeah yeah all done I mean I can get it you know exactly I burst and did 9,000 words a couple of weeks ago and I can't maintain that but you know it, it, that's the thing if you worked this is was the thing about COVID wasn't it that at the end yes. of the day so so I want to say this to you because I ended up doing this because I have a disability and I didn't know I had a disability I had a med and it completely destroyed my mobility yeah mm. so all of a sudden I can't commute So I've got two degrees and 20 years and these awesome references and they say, yeah, yeah, you can work from home one day a week. And I'm like, but I I can't commute on those other days. By the time I get to work, I'm in pain and I'm exhausted. And also I don't operate well in an open plan. I I then have to go home and do all my work. Right. So I was one of those people whose productivity you could see was much better um, when I was at home. So anyway. I'm mortified. And I'm guessing you're going to tell me exactly the same story that all of a sudden, what I was qualified to do, I couldn't do anymore. And that was devastating, utterly devastating, especially because it was so wrong. There was not a thing I couldn't do in my job at home. Mm. You know, and I had a desk at home. It wasn't hot desks, and I had really good internet. You know, it, it, all of it was fine. But now I'm really grateful because I think I do something. I and also I did say to Chris, my husband, the other day, <laughs> I'd work for this government. I'd be Um, But you know, I so it was a good thing, and I love what I do. Yeah. And because you work for yourself, you can find those ways of doing things. Absolutely. So, did you feel pushed out when this guy came in because you just couldn't?
0: Oh, totally. I was completely misused. I mean, you know, I, everything I did and the way that I did it was counter to the normal. You know, the people who sort of get into management at this but this stage of their careers, you know, the, the, they toe the line. They're la la la. I was completely the opposite, and mm. you know, uh, being neurodiverse in this in this Way I didn't know at the time, I mean I only subsequently found out that, that this was a problem, but all the other things that come with a d d including saying the, the wrong things at the wrong time but not it's meaning soft. anything by it
3: yeah 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 in right.
0: the current culture, everything you say is is essentially a window into your soul, and yeah. that you know everyone feels that they've got an opportunity to just pile in and 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 and, yeah. and you know cancel you uh I was falling foul of that, and yet you know for the rest uh. Bear with us. No worries. Ah, batteries ran out suddenly on my machine. No,
2: no, how frustrating. It only ever does that when you need it not to.
0: <laughs> we ought to get to the random question as well. Yeah,
1: I've got the random question ready.
0: Okay, just need to hook these out.
1: Can we shoot my fingernails?
0: Uh, <laughs> if I go that way.
2: No. I have none. <laughs> Nor do I. See? But,
0: uh... And my dad, poor soul, he has a very rare condition called yellow nail syndrome.
3: Oh, yeah. He oh. Literally Which
1: happens. they
0: literally fall literally out. out. Yeah.
1: The first thing he said to me when I met him was, don't look at my fingers.
2: Yeah. they <laughs> oh, okay. have well, actually
0: improved now. but.
2: Okay. Gosh, that's really interesting. You'd <laughs> wonder what was going on there, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you sorted? Because I, I was going to say to you, I think that's really important. I think that's the other message that I would love everybody to get is that, that, that being neurodivergent, you know, we need to be representative and the publishing industry will catch up with this but we need to neurodivergent because because it is not dissimilar to films and television people want to see people like them people they can relate to in in what they watch and what and and definitely in what they read and and I think the publishing industry does need to grow up Mm. however ADD or ADHD clearly has not precluded either of us from writing um, and in fact, I would say if we we can work, and, and and I don't understand a world where you don't look at your team and say this is what works for for Joe, and this is what works for Molly. Therefore, Joe and Molly do it differently because mm. they still get their work done. And uh, to me, I just I've never understood that lack of flexibility or presenteeism. That just is weird and old fashioned. But also with dyslexia, I wanted to raise it here. I have had so many people say I cannot write because I am dyslexic. Now, one, you can write when you're dyslexic, and there's all sorts of spell checks and grammar checks out there which make it irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And editors, thank you, God, for these beautiful people. But also, if you even have a block to it, just record yourself and put it on a transcription and then go through it and make sure it says what you wanted it to say. You're going to get it edited anyway. So for me, there's not a block. But it's not a problem with someone being dyslexic or having some sort of neurodivergence in writing. It may, in fact, be an asset.
1: Yeah, superpower. Use it as your superpower.
0: Absolutely. Well, you have a superpower, my love.
1: Well, my random question? Which is the way
0: your brain works. And we're about to get the, uh, the ultimate... I am slightly neuro-
3: nervous.
0: Yeah, neurodiverse <laughs> questions. So let me, uh, do, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to do the voice. <clears throat> do the voice. I should do it as Gordon Brown, but I you know, <laughs> Rebecca's random question right
1: so you know the question and people uh, this is a common question is if you had three wishes what would you wish for I'm, it's not quite that
3: right. it's,
1: if you had a wish but it couldn't be for world peace or end poverty it's got to be a, something to make the world a better place that would make you personally more happy now if I give you mine as an example that might help you I was in the kitchen I was thinking about worms and I thought if I had this wish, I would make worms cute and furry. Right.
3: Oh. But
1: there you go. It's got to be something that would make your life.
0: Wow. Oh,
2: that's really <laughs>
0: tough. That's a window into your mind, my love. That's really tough.
2: Ah, oh, that's really tough. Sorry. Um,
0: because, I mean, you've been in a position where, you know, as you said with Gordon Brown, you, you, you know, an idea could spark within your team and it, might have led to something that improves the
2: world I'm to look there's just there's so much I mean you know obviously I, it's not even world peace I think it'd be greed for me just getting rid of greed I think would probably solve all of the world's problems because we wouldn't be coveting other people's land and having wars but I don't know mm. I don't know I think it'd be something if it was in the worm related thing I think it would be bees I think that bees mm. are extraordinary creatures that we rely on and you know I'm quite focused on this because I'm a massive caffeine addict and if the bees go there's not going to be any coffee i mean sod food and stuff right we wouldn't have any of <laughs> that but we wouldn't have no coffee and i think what i have witnessed is that people are frightened of bees yes they are and I, I don't understand it because a bee will not sting you because they die when they sting you unless you threaten them so I just I think I wish that for some reason bees were everybody saw what beautiful, incredible, life giving creatures they are, which sounds incredibly random. No but it's I, great. I just I, I just, I mean, I would if I had land, I would have bees. I because we had bees down the road in our in Beckenham. Would you mind urban Beckenham?
0: Yeah, Beckenham. Yeah.
2: Beautiful honey. None of the neighbours treated with pesticides, so none of our veggies and stuff were were rubbish. And it, it also, it it deals with um, histamines. If you have local honey with your local pollen, and you take it a few months before allergy season, you don't get allergies. I mean, I just think they're kind of magic.
0: Wow, I did not know that. I mean, I've, it's funny you bring up the bees because I, I, I've been watching. We've been watching Clarkson's farm where he has bees, mm-hmm. and in the first series, uh, one bee gets through his protective gear, crawls all the way up his leg, goes down his uh, underpants, and gets him right in the uh, it's just stinging. It stings him. In, you know, so perseveres, aren't
2: they? Because stinging Clarkson on the bollocks just sounds the. <laughs> dog's bollocks to me i would like to sting clarkson
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think i think i think he's it's, it's an interesting there are two sides to him um, yes the- no
2: there's not you're just very kind <laughs> and generous there's not two sides to him he's an ass excuse me but he isn't I, I just an hideous human being and i personally do think maybe we could just train them to sting the clarksons and farages of the, and the, that, that's, yeah, of okay. the world yeah. But, yeah, yeah and I everybody like...
1: loves bees but the bees only sting the Clarksons and Farages
2: Ask exactly exactly yeah. exactly they would be doing a public service
0: yeah yeah and the only thing I would want in life is to change is people being organized once they've paid at the till to not spend then half an hour putting it all back in their purse and <laughs> uh you know just get a shift on because I used to work on tills a lot uh, when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. it just, just drives me potty I'm working my arse off to try and you know, to get, get, the get backlog, people through
2: and they're just having a doddle.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, please, just get yourselves organised. Figure out where your purse is before you have to pay because then you can spend five minutes trying to fetter around, trying to find the damn thing. Yeah, and then once like it's that. done, it's can done. stand you're in
2: line forever and then get to wherever he is and then go, oh, now what shall I have? And you're just like, yeah. oh, my God, you've been yeah, 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 25 yeah. minutes in that queue.
0: Well, this is, this is our thing i mean I, I decide in seconds and rebecca will take i'm sorry I, you know the wait for us will come and we know that well, we'll get the you go first and then that'll be the i
1: always need to know what everyone else is eating before i make my decision oh,
0: i see right
1: i don't know why i've always been like that
2: Yes, and I'm quite easy now. I just have a go-to thing because I can't decide. So I just have a go-to thing. I just have that because it saves time. Isn't it funny, though, that you're about to marry someone like that? And I married someone exactly. I mean, I remember when we used to go to these drive-through, we had these chicken places in Australia, and you would. You'd sit there for ages, and then he would literally get to the board with 400,000 people behind him in cars, and he would then go, oh, yeah, I wonder what I should have. And I'd just go. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Serious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was it's the same when I take your kids to uh to Taco Bell.
1: And I normally go back to the first thought I had anyway. I normally consider everything and then I think, no, I'll just have a cheeseburger.
2: that's also him so we go shopping and i hate shopping unless it's a bookshop or station i hate shopping like really he even likes food shopping but go figure right that to me people can do that for you now Um, but he loves it and you can go to a shopping center and my mother's the same and they'll go and see something in the first shop you'll do 30 shops with them they'll come back to that thing at which point i just want to kill them
0: yes yes um nicole where can people find you online and uh all the things that you do
2: uh, okay so um the easiest way is my website is www.writingtribe.com writing tribe one word and i'm nicole at writing email and i'm on twitter i'm occasionally on instagram <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook and also I have... about bra- TikTok? Sorry, I, no, I haven't brave TikTok and I, I am still resisting the urge to go anywhere near that chat AI thingy. Oh, um, chat, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: Chit chat G- GT or whatever it's called. I
2: yeah. know I've had people come on, people who want coaching or ghostwriting and panicking and going, well, if I write, um, they're going to take my jobs and I'm just like, they're not, are they? There's a lot of rubbish content out there that robots can produce it's going to replace that stuff I think it's probably good on the top 10 stuff but it's not ever going to give a human I mean we've had this conversation now and you know we've, even the the AD, ADD or the ADHD you know you're never going to get kind of that human connection and go oh my god wow i've just learned mm. something about that you're not going to get from it but um i, I also have the free online writing tribe it is facebook and i know a lot of people don't do facebook but if you are on facebook and you want to join the writing tribe it's free and they're lovely people
0: i'm going to be joining he it will be within seconds of finishing <laughs> oh, this excellent. interview.
2: excellent i love that and i shall and and you know if if you if you want to have a chat we we can have a chat because I think it'd be a real shame if you if you don't finish it. And also you just kind of feel so great when you do. That's and true. And he gets a guitar. And you get a guitar and maybe even a puppy. I know.
0: Yeah. I mean what, what oh, more that's, incentives to I... me.
2: Never mind people being quick and cues. You get a guitar and a puppy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's
2: proper. I mean, you know, and not just any guitar, by the way.
0: No. Offender <laughs> strap.
2: Exactly, the, the the master of all masters.
0: Yeah, well, it's going to be David Gilmore Black. That's the that's the, the plan.
2: Beautiful. I used to play the guitar a hundred years ago, really, really badly. Um, and I now I haven't played it for a hundred years. I do Smelly Cat very badly. Now, see, Smelly Cat might be amongst my favourite songs. That is, I'm not a Friends follower, but she just cracked me up with that song.
0: Yeah, Vex does a good one. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really, really has, um, Nicole. And we really are so grateful for you joining us. We've gone so much from it, and I'm sure all our listeners have too.
2: Well, I've loved it. Thank you so much. And, um, and yeah, I, I hope we stay in touch.
0: Indeed. Absolutely. We will.
2: Brilliant.
0: I just love that interview. That was uh, such fun.
1: It was brilliant, wasn't it? I saw Perfect one. for one, one, one. Yep. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I sound like uh, Miranda, Miranda Hart. Such fun.
1: Oh, So she say that? You, I don't know. Yeah,
0: she did in the series. Yeah, <laughs> she did. Yeah, it was it was, it was a great favourite of mine. Well, that was wonderful. Who have we got next week?
1: So next week we're talking to two chaps from a uh, independent publisher called Wordsmithery, which I love that name. Makes me think of blacksmiths, and they are um, Sam Hall and Barry Fentiman Hall. And yeah. they also um, uh, oversee um, book festivals in Kent. I don't know much any more than that at the moment. So we're going to talk to them about what they do.
0: Well, let me read just a little line <laughs> okay. from their website, which says, Wordsmithery is regularly commissioned to devise and deliver community-engaged creative literary activities that, in Kent.
1: That sounds really good, doesn't it? So it does,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm looking forward to it. They They, they come across as very interesting chaps.
0: They are a Medway based literary arts organisation. <laughs> Perhaps we should uh we should get to speak get him to speak to Lewis Hastings. Medway? Because that's he writes about the Medway area.
1: Oh, does he? I honestly can't remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The angel of, of Whitehall features very heavily in that area.
1: I don't remember Oh yes, I do remember now. Oh dear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Brain okay. fog, sorry. Yeah, it's been this is Sunday afternoons we record this. It is a bit of brain fog. What have we got coming up this week?
1: Um, we don't have a book publishing this week. No. But um we we're going publishing next week. So yes We're off
0: off to a book launch at the end of the week. Yes,
1: yeah, so Lynn LaVersh's Blood Ties, which published um a short while ago, not very long ago, but she's having an event sort of book launch... Um, she's going to give a talk about her series as well in um, Southwold. And we've been invited along. And guess what we said? We said, yes, please. So, we're
0: we're kid free. We love the seaside. We love Southwold and any excuse. Yes. So, any uh, excuse. We're, we're going to head there. And,
1: and Lynn is a great host.
0: Yeah. Say. And uh, well, work wise, I am still, you know, in my knee deep in the um, the viscera of the late Roman Empire. Literally. Uh I'm I'm into the third of the five books I've been commissioned to do about Roman legionaries and uh, that's for narration purposes so I'm in my studio every day uh, and it's been I mean I'm really enjoying this one um, I just you know actually can't wait to get in and do some more
1: I know I can, I can see it yeah you, you've got this eagerness about you I that... know
0: I know and that's despite the fact that uh, in book two three of my favorite characters got bumped off
1: yes you were you were distraught
0: yeah, I really was. Um, well, not least because, you know, there's three character voices I love doing and the, you can't use them again. Fortunately, they do appear as ghosts occasionally, so they have returned. Uh, but it has meant that oh, know, was... I've, I've had to create some new voices.
1: Are you telling me there are ghosts in this sto- Real ghosts?
0: Well, they they appear in dreams and things
1: uh, like that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, there's a lot of sort of um, elements in, in this. Is, these, these books by Gordon Doherty of... Um, every book has a dream foreshadowing basically what happens at the end of each book. There's always a dream. Um, you know, poor Parvo, the the lead character who has been promoted through the ranks, uh, always has a dream that foreshadows. What I might like happen. that
1: though. Cause yeah. sometimes that happens in real life. Sometimes yeah, you do no, have no, a no, dream. Absolutely.
0: And... Absolutely. Or his dead father speaks to him or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's quite complex, but yeah, having to create new voices and, um, new characters and uh yeah I've, I've really enjoyed it so that that's that's a chunk of my my week but there's so many other things that we're working on at the same time so
1: yes i i am structural editing a uh, self-help guide for students which i'm absolutely <laughs> loving the work i love it. it doesn't feel like work at all i actually get quite excited when i think i'll do a bit of my student book now
0: yeah So, um, well, look, thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. And uh, we'd like to uh, recommend you to our website. Well, two websites now. Uh, www.hobeck.net for all things about our fiction business and all our authors and our audio books and all our books there and all the latest news and blogs and all that sort of thing. It's there. And archpub.net is the home of our publishing services, uh, which we launched uh, two or three weeks ago and uh, it's getting great guns, so thank you for your support. If you'd like to contact us, please reach out to us through Twitter where we're very active as Hobart Books and uh, we'd like to hear from you. Any comments on this week's show? Um, But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart.
1: And myself, Rebecca Collins.
0: Thanks so much for joining us and it remains for us to offer you uh, this warm wish for your week ahead. May it be (laughs) wonderful and also
1: creative.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobec Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobec online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.